Welcome to America's Top 40, September 8, 1987. Welcome to Rushcast. My name is Jay Mantis, and welcome to the 2016 album series, No Album Left Behind. We are more than halfway through Rush's catalog at this point in 2016. We'll be done sometime in June, I think. It's been a lot of fun, uh, especially trying to make each one better than the last. It's uh, difficult, but a fun thing to try to strive for. This week we're doing one of, uh, definitely an album that you could argue is someone like me would argue is one of the most underrated albums. Like I know most people have hold your fire in the bottom half in their grand ranking, you know, uh, it's definitely in the top half for me. I'm not sure how close to the top it is, but it's definitely in the upper half. All this, all these things are subjective too. You know, we're all different before I forget. I want to say thanks to Ron Reed, who has been cutting together these awesome intros for us that you just heard giving us a little bit of insight into what the top hits were from each respective year for each album. So Hold Your Fire, 1987. Uh, we're hearing those you know, poppy radio hits that were topping the charts back then. Uh, Ron calls it the six-month medley. So you get a kind of a taste of what music was popular in a six-month window around when this album was released i think it's really cool and when we first started doing it in the moving pictures episode i didn't know hardly any of them and now you know six years later i i I think i recognize every single one of them like i even like some of them some of them are like oh yeah it's a good tune you know which is definitely different than the last couple weeks so thank you ron you're doing a great job and uh a lot of people email and say they really like it Today I'm talking to somebody I've been excited to uh, re-invite to Rushcast since the last time he was on. Uh, please welcome Jeff Garrett. How's it going, Jeff? Hi, Jay. The Hold Your Fire support group is reconvened. <laughs> That's right. So I was just—I always ask him, like, 
uh, what was your album? I know you were on an old, old episode, uh, and I remember really enjoying talking to you, but what was the name of it? It was called the, at the end of the uh, episode is when I usually decide what we're going to name the episode, except for the album series, which obviously I know what this episode is going to be called, but I kind of enjoyed before the album series where we would just talk to someone like Jeff, see where it went, and then name the episode after whatever we talked about. And it ended up being the Hold Your Fire support group, so it's only fitting that he rejoins the show for this album. Jeff, I remember, yes, like, you, I, I was so happy when you volunteered for Hold Your Fire because I think Hold Your Fire needed a specific kind of guest, somebody with a certain amount of, um, somebody with, like, the right kind of ear. And, I, and you have, hands down, the most eccentric ear that I've talked to in the Rushcast community. You have, like, like your taste in Rush music is different than anybody else I've ever talked to. You know what I'm talking about, yes. right? Yes. Uh, well, uh, first let me say, uh, <laughs> you know, just like an AA meeting, um, hi, everybody, my name is Jeff, and I like Hold Your Fire. Uh, <laughs> yes. That might be so, a thing we continue for anybody that comes on the show and says good things about the album. Right. And I, I think this album, you know, it, it kind of gets, it gets pushed, pushed aside. And, um, I think a lot of that has to do with the, you know, the overall sound, but I, for me, I really appreciate the precision. I, I appreciate hearing each instrument, uh, you know, very clearly and not to mention that, you know, of course the songwriting, but, uh, to me, it's, there is actually more balance to this album than a lot of people give it credit for. Um, a lot of people say that it's drowning in synthesizers and, you know, it, it definitely does have that 80s type of sound. Um, a lot of the progressive rock bands of this time period were going through a similar kind of, uh, transition. If you think about bands like, yes, uh, you know, the coming out with owner of a lonely heart and, you know, Genesis and, uh, you know, th- their overall sounds were kind of doing the same thing. They were getting a little more pop oriented. They, you know, kind of had that airbrushed sound to them. So I think that's why the album gets a sort of a bad rap, but yeah, um, what, what I've, I like me personally, what I've learned going through these albums again, revisiting them in uh, chronological order is that, uh, in my opinion, Signals is the album that's drowning in synthesizers. I think what people, yeah. for people who don't like Power Windows and Hold Your Fire as much, who people who say maybe it's drowning in synthesizers, I think what they really mean is that they don't like the type of synthesizers that are that are present on Hold Your Fire because they're very different sounds than we hear on Signals, and for whatever reason they're like less they're you know less accepted for some reason. But I, I specifically that's, go ahead. No, that's that's true, and I think Alex actually has said that too. Um, I, I found a, an, an interview where he was talking about signals being the one that he can't listen to anymore. Um, oh, so wow. I think you're right on about the type of synthesizers, yeah. You know? Yeah, and I I almost before the album series I probably would have said, oh, signals and definitely Grace Under Pressure were more synth heavy, but now having done a whole episode on grace under pressure uh i feel like i i I more so know what i'm talking about now because um because it's it's really a guitar album i had somebody email me this week and say thank you so much for pointing out that it really is a guitar album grace under pressure that is and uh kind of piggybacking on what jeff said um 
in his his intro was this is really the perfect balance, I think. If you're able to open your ears a little bit and kind of take it for what it is, you can't go in to hold your fire expecting moving pictures. You'll be disappointed. If you go in ex- expecting new music, something different, you'll be very happy. I think this record is a perfect drum record, a perfect guitar record, and a perfect bass record. And, and, and also vocals and also songwriting. I think everything's perfect on this record. You just have to sort of, you can't go in expecting prog rock. Right. Yeah, very balanced. I would say the album is very balanced. And and, and also to say, um, you, you know, the album series has given me a chance to kind of reevaluate how I feel about each of these albums. And, mm-hmm. and Grace Under Pressure actually has moved up on my list. I, I've got it at number three now of my, my favorite albums. And really? I've got Hold Your Fire. Yeah, I've got Hold Your Fire at number five. So... Uh, this this kind of time period is kind of like the I don't know the the my, one of my favorite periods. So it's, okay, I I, 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 I just Grace on. Yeah. <laughs> this is hard. If ah. you got, you guys are listening, wondering why this is happening, but uh, Jeff is in Colombia, and uh, I'm in New York, <laughs> uh, and we're using Skype, and Skype's got a little bit of a latency thing naturally, so it's it's tough to not talk over one another. Um, Jeff, I want to I want to guess what your others are in that top five because I specifically remember when I first met Jeff on the phone on Rushcast. He's he um, and this is when I learned he had a he had a taste for the sort of lesser known Rush stuff like you know l- like Open Secrets or something. Uh, he likes yeah. that track. Uh, tracks like that. I remember him saying he didn't like Stick It Out, and for many many people, in fact, Mark Anthony said it last week. Stick It Out was the big return. Stick It Out was, oh, yeah, we're back. We're back to the riffs and the detuned heaviness and the distortion. And I remember you saying you didn't enjoy that kind of rush. You liked the Hold Your Fire rush. Yes, well, I mean, you had, there's Bill Middletown Meyer. Um, <laughs> in, in the same way, you, you could maybe call me Jeff Stick It Out, Garrett, or, <laughs> you know, since, since we are talking about... Uh, <laughs> You know, yeah, that type of sound. Um, yeah, the reason I like this album is because it's you can hear each instrument so well and it's so balanced. And songs like "Stick It Out" and and the, I think they they came from that time period where it started to become you know more the style, the heavy rock. You know, the the other type of bands that were playing at that time. You know, they they turned up the distortion a lot and, and Vapor Trails I think kind of reflects that sound too which I, it didn't do a lot for me so those albums are a lot lower on my list mm-hmm. so at the top of my list yeah you've got a lot of sound a lot of albums from the 80s um so I, I look at Grace Under Pressure Power Windows and Hold Your Fire almost like a trilogy um or another way to look at it and uh, I don't know if there's any Beatles fans out there. There probably are, but there's another analogy. Uh, the two Beatles albums, Rubber Soul and Revolver, have often been talked about as being uh, double albums, or they could be a, a double album. They could have been made as a, you know, a, a two-disc or a double album. Mm-hmm. I think that Power Windows and Hold Your Fire are kind of related in that way. They they could have been uh, a, a double album, if you will. Like they. The sound is very similar. The themes are somewhat similar, although Power Windows is a little more exterior. I think uh, Hold Your Fire is a little more personal in uh, type of subject matter. But but both of those albums, I think, 
are very much uh, have a lot in common. A lot of the music is the same. Yeah. And I'll, I'll, as we go along the tracks, I'll point some of those times out. That is the one of the biggest, the one of the first things I noticed about the catalog once I started getting into every album was the first, you know, I, we call them sister albums or I call them sister albums. You can go yeah. through their catalog and almost every album has a sister album on either side of it. But these two, more than any of them, this these were the first this was the first pair where I'm like, these two albums are so closely related. Um, but now there is, and while I still think that's true, like you said, there is this sort of divide sound-wise. Or maybe it's not sound. No, it's definitely sound. But like you said, it's, uh, I, how did you say, exterior and more of uh, Hold Your Fires more. I, interior. Yeah, I, I think Power Windows to me is, is just that. It's looking out a window. It's looking out into the world. So, you know, it has, the topics of the songs are, are very external from the writer's perspective. So you're talking about uh, other countries, you know, um, you know, ter- like the song Territories, you know, big money, you know, financial economy. That a lot of the topics are, are kind of looking at society and looking at what's going around through that window. On Hold Your Fire, you're talking about very, you know, personal uh, interior type songs from the, you know, from someone's perspective who's reflecting on personal experience and the topic of, you know, instincts and temperament. So songs like Time Stand Still, um, you know, are, are, are very much, a, you know, personal experience, even Open Secrets. Um, so, uh, yeah, we can, if you want to move on to talking about the songs, we can do that or... Yeah, let's let's get into the tracks here. <laughs> Uh, the juicy mm-hmm. stuff, right? Force Ten, I okay. think, is a um, a cool example, you know, and and not uh, not alone in being a really strong track to start out the album. Like this has been happening for years at this point. One of the strongest tracks is usually number one. There's a few there's a few cases in the catalog where uh, it's like, oh, why why start with that one? But I think uh, Force Ten initially was like. As a growing bass player, one something I had to learn, something that was really appealing to me. Uh, easy to digest is a, a sort of metaphor that we've been using a lot, and I really like. It, it sounds good from the first listen. You agree? I think yeah. I think instantly uh, there's a positive reaction to Force Ten. Uh, it's it's. The one I, I think the track has the, maybe the least amount of keyboards. I mean, there are some, but it's it's very much just you know the three of them kind of you know rocking. It's high energy. It's up tempo. I think it's you know a great opening song. Um, the, the most interesting thing I found about this song is that uh, it was written last. It was it was recorded on the last day of the recording session, so it was almost an afterthought. So the band talks about having written it, you know, pretty quickly. Um, I think the, uh, you know, the producer had said, you know, we, we've got nine tracks. We need to add a, let's add a tenth one. And so they sat down and they wrote Force 10. So it, it came out uh, very, you know, very quickly, which, um, and it worked out pretty well, I think. Yeah, I think, I think from a songwriting point of view or a music composition point of view, even like that's sometimes a very good thing that sometimes works to your advantage. Like let's let's see what how we can write a good can we write a good song in a day, you know what I mean? Sometimes it's easy to overthink when you're writing music, 
And I, I mean, I bet you could argue some of the tracks on Hold Your Fire were maybe overthought a bit too much. I, w- I wouldn't argue with you if you said that, but uh, it's cool to see and it's cool to learn because I didn't know that was written last. Like, like what would of the remaining songs? What would they open the album with? Time stands still, I guess. I well, that was the that was the song that was written first. Interestingly, uh, that that song they came in, uh, you know, prepared, uh, you know, to do that song. But it to me that would not be a good opening song. And and in fact, I, I you guys talked about the uh, the the one two of I think was the, the big money and grand designs and power windows last mm-hmm. week. I would argue that the best one-two opening song combo is, is this. It, it's Force 10 and Time Stand Still. And I would back that up because on the Hold Your Fire tour, they play these songs just like that, back to back. Yeah, very. isn't that cool? Like, uh, There was another example. I got it right here. Uh, there was another example of something like that from Hold Your Fire. Uh, and in the middle of the set, too, Force 10, Time Stand Still, and then we get some Grace Under Pressure stuff. Uh, Lock and Key and Mission are right next to each other. Not that those two necessarily relate to each other as heavily, but it is cool how they pair them up sometimes. Uh, Turn the Page and Prime Mover are out of order. Those aren't next to each other on the album, but they were on the tour. Uh, it's it's funny to me to look at these old set lists and see how they kind of chunk together the new material. You know, in the in later in more recent years they kind of do it in the second set they'll just hit all the new material uh minus one or two tracks but yeah it's it's a and speaking of live shows something that irked me about or irks me about force 10 is that they play it a lot live but it's never quite like the studio in the intro they have this sort of like uh choral sound uh that goes back and forth between two chords and obviously it's triggered, but the chord changes at a different spot than the studio version does. I, I, I bet somebody's listening who knows what I'm talking about. It's almost as small as how they changed the note duration in YYZ when they play it live. Uh, it's just a tiny little thing that I'm like, oh, why are you doing it like that? It like, sounds better on the studio recording. You have no idea what I'm talking about, do you, Jeff? <laughs> Um, that particular part I'm, I'm not as familiar with, but I, I was just thinking that um, the, the biggest change for me came during R30 when I heard Force 10. I, I, don't, I don't know if it was because they're using different instruments and they, they might have changed the tempo a, a slightly, but to me it sounds like a very different song than, than uh, during the Hold Your Fire tour. Um, well, could I'm, I'm sure that's probably because of the different bass guitar, you know, the different yeah. guitars they're using. Uh, don't you think that Every th- every track on this record benefits from their more current live sound because like much of this record isn't very heavy or not even talking about the writing like sound wise it it's not chunky it's not ballsy uh which might be a good thing you might argue it's better to have the clarity rather than the uh the thrashy energy uh for me yeah i would agree yeah the the sound of those songs now um it, it's just enhanced. I mean, because the basic structure of the songs, I think, is solid. The the precision of you know that they require, it kind of lends itself to to more uh, clarity and just a better delivery overall. So yeah, for me, I I like the these songs played now, but I also like them 
on uh, a show of hands. And I think all of these songs actually should be seen in the uh, kind of the con or in relation to a show of hands, both the the DVD and I'm not sorry, the VHS tape actually, huh. and the uh, uh, I'm sorry, the, the CD also. Like that's how I was exposed to most of these songs was through a, a show of hands. Um, and I think a lot of people probably feel pretty strongly about that. I think most of those recordings were uh, some of the best live versions of these songs. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's that live album is such a nice representation of the, the two, in my opinion, the two tours they were promoting. Uh, I know it was technically the Hold Your Fire tour, but it feels like a Power Windows Hold Your Fire promotion to me. Especially since yeah, yeah. the Power Windows material material was so new and still so perfectly performed, you know, like we get to hear Marathon um, Manhattan Project on that record, right? On that mm-hmm. live record, um, right? Yeah, you know, Marathon on that is is great. I, that that whole that VHS tape actually, I had, I remember borrowing it from a, a friend's house, and uh, I'm pretty sure they never got it back. Um, because I, I, I watched that concert video all the time, and, and then I, I distinctly remember going out and buying the CD, A Show of Hands, and then eventually going back and getting Hold Your Fire. So for me, it was experiencing the live versions first um, on, on most of these songs. Uh, I also like live, in the live setting, Force 10's bridge gets uh, extended, and there's a little bit of a jam session that happens between Getty and Alex. Where they both improvise a little bit before we get into what we're used to hearing on the record. Uh, I'm I'm a fan of any time that's something that's happening, except maybe closer to the heart. Like I've I've heard enough yeah. of the jam session and closer to the heart. Just just for me, <laughs> I liked the R40 version that just got on with it. Um, mm. But I did I do like the different stages version though. With that I I do like the. Uh... Do you know what I'm talking about in different stages when they um, play Closer to the Heart? Closer to the Heart. Uh, what, what was it specifically? The, the, in different stages, the, the, the live CD from uh, right after Test for Echo, yep. uh, they, they play uh, Closer to the Heart and they, they kind of modify the, the ending of Closer to the Heart. And it gets a little more uh, you know, uh, funkier sounding on the bass guitar. For, oh, know, yes. It's, it's, almost a, it's almost a bass solo. For a few bars, uh, yeah, actually. yeah, I know exactly what we're talking about, and I, yeah, that's a that's a good point. That's a really nice showcase of Getty's playing. Then I think he had a really nice tone during that tour as well. So that's a nice recording. Different stages, I think, has a it doesn't get enough credit. There's a lot of gems in terms of specific recordings of songs. Bravado, especially, I think, is a great recording on that record. Um, yeah. Time stand, the same thing. I would argue Time Stand Still is one of the best um, examples of great songwriting in the band's history. I think as a song, have, it's almost perfect. I would I would agree completely. I, I, I think this might be, you know, if not maybe their one maybe their best song. I mean their best songwriting for sure. The lyrics, the the music all tie in together. I, I, I think that's it's probably one of my favorite uh rush songs all together just because of the you know it's it has many different um i don't know uh, tone colors like there you know some parts of it are you know very soft and laid back and then it builds an intensity and and just a very relatable song too so uh, i mean for me it's always it, when i heard the concert during the uh time machine tour i guess it was uh for me the emotional high point yes uh 
I, specifically regarding the Time Machine tour, I remember it was the second track, I think. And before the show, my dad and I would sit there with binoculars, and my brother too, and we would try to we'd analyze the stage. I remember we could see the feet of uh, Alex's amps, which looked like furniture, and we were completely confused as to what that was. And he had his keyboard out. Alex had a keyboard out, and we were highly confused about that as well. Uh, that was a really nice moment and really well performed on that tour. But like you said, I like I like what you said about it being relatable. It's easy to digest. Uh, they had a guest vocalist, but didn't ruin it. You know, they didn't they didn't ruin anything. They didn't overdo it on Time Stand Still with the guest vocalist. She did just enough. Um, easy to play. Definitely. Well, except ahead. for the video, of course. Except for the video. <laughs> But uh, actually, no, I'm I'm kidding. But I actually, I love the video. I, I think I've seen on the internet that some people call it the worst video ever. I I call it um, that. You love the video? I love. Well, you have to understand. I love weird rush. Like I I think they're at their best when they're being <laughs> weird, when they're being unconventional. And and to me, like I I don't. I look at that video. Did you know the video was directed by um, uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski? He was a he's a famous um, uh, movie director, and he came up with a lot of innovative uh, techniques for um, music videos, movies, and this was uh, he actually directed this video. And as you know, it's very low tech, you know, and, and but for the time, you know, it, it looks low budget. But there's something about that that it's almost you know like what is this, what you know this is that's why I listen to Rush is because they're so different from everyone else. And, yeah. and that's why I okay. You know. uh, so I I get that. Um, I think I think what ruins it for me is that the song is so perfect and it lends itself to having a completely balling yeah. co- like like such an opposite side of the spectrum. Like maybe the it lends itself to be having the greatest I, music video ever. There's so much but potential. I almost, but Jay, I almost I I feel that it might. If you had a, like a real serious video during that time, it would almost come off as maybe melodramatic. Yeah, or a, maybe a, a little. Because in I feel that way about the lock and key video. Mm-hmm. To me, I and once we get to talking about lock and key, I'll tell you my my true feelings about that song. But um, I, I almost I appreciate almost the kind of humorous take on on time on the time standstill video because uh, it. It makes the song itself, when it's isolated, that more uh, meaningful. And like the video is almost like you can tell they're experimenting with it, like they're trying to do something with it. But uh, um, I, I can kind of see both points. Like maybe it could be a little more serious, so taken a little bit, you know, in a different direction. But I think if it was taken too serious, then it would have been just too much. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, but there's a there's a spoof video of it of somebody like narrating over it. And it's my favorite thing ever. So <laughs> even if yeah. I don't like the video, at least I can have something to laugh at. But that, those are good points. I mean, I'm sure, Jeff, you're the only person ever to defend that, except maybe the director, to defend that video. <laughs> so okay. I'm glad so even to have... within the support... Okay, good. Even within the support group, I, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I stand on <laughs> Even in the Hold Your Fire support group, you're by yourself <laughs> in defending that video. <laughs> Oh, that makes me well, feel I wanna, good. I, I, I'd want to hear from you if you're listening and you want to, if you want membership in the Hold Your Fire support group, let me know and I'll add you 
Uh, I'll tally it up because I'd like to be, have an actual number, like a tangible number I can say, oh, there are four. There are only four people in the Hold Your Fire support group, so we understand why it's a neglected album or what, whatever. Uh, yes, if you know you know someone who is who's listening to the album and enjoys it, help is out there. Just just a phone call away. Just right. call the hotline. All you have to do is call Columbia. Uh, <laughs> also, uh, just lastly on Time Stand Still, beautiful execution and just slipping in a little bit of mixed meter, a little bit of uh, exotic of an exotic time signature into the middle of this song. There's a little bit of seven happening in the bridge that I bet a lot of you are thinking right now, really? <laughs> that there's seven in there? Because it's a it's a poppy tune, and they're still throwing weird meters into their, you know, radio-friendly stuff. And this might be the most radio-friendly song they've ever written next to maybe New World Man or something of that nature. Uh, yeah, the ability... The ability to use time signatures so seamlessly, I mean, is there, it's a trademark. They, they're able to do it so well, you don't even know what's happening. But again, that, under, that even subconsciously, I think that serves the song so well. And the fact that they're playing with time uh, reflects, again, the theme of time itself and, and what they're trying to do. And, and just to talk about the theme uh, really quickly, I, um, I, was, I was thinking about the overall topic of this song and it's not really i think looking back overly nostalgically because i don't think neil does that i I think he's talking more about you know as you go through life as you go through your teenage years your 20s you're you're kind of you're going straight through life you're really you're full steam ahead you're you're living fast and then you get to your your 30s and i think it's a you're not as focused you you slow down a little bit and you start to take in things a little bit more and I think it's more self-reflective, but it's, you know, it's kind of acknowledging that time is starting to change, you know, your relationship to time is starting to change a little. Right. So I'm getting a, I'm sorry, Jeff, I'm getting a phone call here and I wish it wouldn't interrupt me when I'm doing podcasts. So I apologize for the beeping. Um, So let's move on to Open Secrets. I think the next two tracks here are the heaviest on the record and i don't mean sound wise i mean vibe wise um they have the heaviest yeah. meaning uh, come on give me a break android's really uh failing hard right now open secrets and open secrets might be the one even you know past Taishan or anything else on the record that took me the longest to sort of understand i would argue it is the hardest to digest on the album there's so much going on, and it's such a, uh, again, a heavy feel, um, a heavy sentiment, that it's hard to sort of take on the first listen. But once you really get inside the song, there's so much good stuff happening. There are so many gems, individual gems among the three of them. I should say the four of them with Andy Richards uh, that are happening. I mean, like the guitar solo towards the end, the bass work, the singing is incredible. What do you think? I think that this song, uh, like you say, there's a lot going on, and there's more, you know, more to it than I guess meets the meets the ear at first. Um, I, I really like that. Um, again, you say the heaviness is the heaviness is not really just in the sound; it's in the um, the the feeling of of what he's talking about. It's very personal again. So you go from time stand still. It's kind of uh, 
maybe a good memory and then open secrets kind of describing kind of a, uh, you know, a, a more negative type of memory or some type of, you know, uh, relationship issue. Um, but as far as the song itself goes, I love the pre-chorus, like the, the guitar lead that sets up that ominous feeling before landing at the chorus with the, the moot bass pedal. Do you know what I'm talking about? Da, the, da, 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 right? Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Like the, I guess you would call that like a pre-chorus, like just, you know, right before they, you know, go into singing the, the chorus. To me, that adds so much. If you didn't have that, I, I, I think it would be a much, you know, more of a throwaway song. But um, I love when Getty goes from, you know, his, his that funky active bass line to the, the solid, you know, synth mood pedals. Like, I, I always like that. You know, it's, uh, to me, the contrast is, is great. And I, I always like, I copied that style when I was, you know, in, in high school and my, in, you know, our little high school band, I always got too active because I wanted to be Getty Lee basically. And I had my <laughs> keyboard set up, I had my bass guitar and, you know, I'd play on the bass and then you'd, you know, hit the, the synthesizer and like switch on and off. And I just thought that was so unique. Like I'd yeah. never seen anybody the, that the way he does. And in the song, he does it. And I, I would have loved to see a live version of this song. I, I, I wish, um, I think this would have been a great, a dark horse song, a really good song to play live. But oh, really? um, I don't think they never, I don't think they ever have, uh, as far as I know. They haven't. There's four tracks. There are four tracks on this record that have never seen the light of day. And I was going to, mm-hmm. I was going to point out that they're sort of predictable. Um, when you, when I, when I was on the way to the Snakes and Arrows, my first Snakes and Arrows concert, I didn't know what the set list was. I looked at the back of the record and I thought, I know exactly what tunes they're not going to play. They're not going to play Good News First or uh, Bravest Face. And I also mm-hmm. said Larger Bull. I was completely lo- wrong about Larger Bull and they didn't play We Hold On either. But I think on any record, you can sort of see the ones that were, um, and Mark Anthony hit on this really nicely last week. They're almost predictably placed on the album as well. Look where Tyshawn sits. In that slot, you sort of know if that's the studio track. They're probably not going to play that one. But uh, the four tracks, Never Seen the Light of Day, High Water, Tyshawn, Second Nature, and Open Secrets. Sort of sort of predictable. Yeah, I, yeah, I agree. I just, yeah, I wish that, I like Open Secrets a lot. I, to me, it sounds great. You know, when, you, when you've got the stereo, you know, you know turned up, when, when he goes to the mood pedals, it's again so heavy and it's it's just ominous, you know. So, there, yeah, I, I like this track. I want to talk about one specific spot in this song that really gives me goosebumps. Um, and also one of the very f- this part has one of the very few moments in this '80s era that I think Rush sounds like stereotypical '80s music, and that's not even the synth work; it's the guitar in um, the bridge, I guess you could say, of Open Secrets when he says. Uh, I know absolution. You got it. I know absolution in my rational point of view. The guitar arpeggios there and just the tone sound like an '80s movie. It sounds like, you know, yeah. kind of right before the right before the peak of a like Karate Kid or something. I don't know <laughs> what's it is it is Karate Kid from the '80s. It's like the late '80s, I yeah. think. Right. Uh, yeah. Anyway, there are some moments. There are some moments on the CD that I think are even. Uh, how you, you know better examples or should i say worse examples of that so <laughs> uh, uh well i think those are coming up but, but the the goosebump moment for me is when getty says 
but there's one thing we could do. You could try to understand me. I could try to understand you. He repeats that line, which uh, you as an English teacher, Jeff, you understand mm-hmm. that uh, significance. Oh, yeah. uh, not that anyone else wouldn't understand. But they go into this beautiful guitar, crying guitar solo. Uh, it has one of the greatest licks. Like in jazz, we, we learn licks. I listen to Charlie Parker, and I'll extract one measure where he plays this one lick because I really like that. It has one of, I think, one of Alex's best licks in that solo. Uh, a lot of pinch harmonics, a great example of good tone. Uh, I just I just wanted to fight for that section of that song. I don't think this song gets nearly enough love. I completely agree. It's like the guitar is, is wailing out and just crying, just like you, know, uh, you can almost picture the... the the screaming going on, the yelling, the fight that's, you know, that he's talking about. So I, the whole jam outro of that song is, is great too. The bass that he's, you know, if you listen to the bass at that point, oh, yeah. I mean, just, Oh, I mean, the the, him repeating, let it go is uh, I think a really powerful moment. Uh, and towards the end, once he's done saying, let it go, the guitar does this thing we haven't heard for the whole track. And he goes, da, 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 Da 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 da. You know what part I'm talking about? Yeah, I, yeah. Oh, that that's absolutely beautiful. I think the more I listen to this record, every time I listen to it, I I I think more highly of Alex Leibson. I I and he I know yeah, I, I don't want to say he hates this record, but we know he was most grumpy <laughs> in 1987 about what was happening with the music, right? I, I you know what I don't know. I've read some things that they actually thought more highly of this album they felt like it was more of a success from the production standpoint and uh i don't think alex was as i mean eventually i think they did kind of change their sound but i think it happened naturally i don't think he was at least at least one article that i read that he wasn't too upset with the way the guitar was because i think they for the most part they have an equal say and i think they kind of they evolved but to me it seems like he had more of a problem with it the albums leading up to this album, like, you know, with, with, uh, signals. Yes. Uh, because the sound was more buried in the mix at, at points. But to me, you're, you're right. Alex Lyson on this album, uh, there are just genius moments where, with the tone of his guitar, the, the licks, as you say, are, are so emotive. And, but, you know, the precision is incredible. Yeah. I think it's great. Yeah. Second Nature so. has another solitary moment that I, I have, maybe the biggest goosebump moment on the record for me, and that's the bridge again. You know, I think you could say about a lot of these tracks on this record is that the bridge is sort of the peak of the track. That's where everything comes to a head. And um, while Second Nature, especially even at first, was I thought was a very, very strong track, this bridge where we get boom, boom, it's really a synth solo if if you think about it. But it's the yeah. it's the uh, the bass pedals and those big fat Alex power chords underneath it that are my favorite part. I think that is so perfectly executed and the sound is so perfectly recorded. Uh, that's something that flies way under the radar, in my opinion. I think you can tell the song was written on the keyboard, yes. obviously, and, and and Getty wrote it on the on the keys. I think that the place of this song uh, is kind of fitting. If you think of it this way, there's 10 tracks on this album, and they were thinking more about the the cassettes 
than they were a vinyl. So you've got five tracks on one side and five on the other. And so where, where Second Nature sits is like the second to last song. And to me, it, it works in that position. It's, it's, it's very, it's exposed. I mean, Neil's politics are kind of exposed or he, at least his, you know, some of his feelings on things. And at times it is a little cliche, especially when he says fight the fire while feeding the flame. To me, that sounds, you know, a, a little cheesy, a little cliche. A little too easy. And yeah. And, and, it, it is a little overproduced. There is a lot of keyboard, but I mean, that, that's kind of what the song is supposed to be. I mean, it is a more, uh, you know, a contemplative track. It's not a rock, you know, uh, track, but it, it sets up, it's the second to last song on side A of a cassette, right? So you've got, you know, the first three songs. I think the song order on, on the whole side A, if you will, of this album, the first five tracks is outstanding. I, I think the, the, placement of the songs is incredible um yeah it's, it's nicely well-rounded you know right you feel like a complete experience after you listen to to side it you know the first five songs of this album and, and it, you know going into the next song that we're going to talk about but but second nature i think uh it's it's placed well um i it's the part that you were talking about that, that was very instrumentalized i, I think uh is very good and and when it comes in at the end with the big chorus and and the soaring guitar and it's kind of a it is an emotional moment it's good i just it's to me some of the lyrics are not as strong uh-huh. you know it is a little more uh, i don't know what the word is um like where time stands still succeeds kind of in conveying you know it, its emotions really well i think second nature is at times is somewhat uh you know, naive or cliche in some of its sentiments, but it kind of, you know, it, it, it works. I still like the song. It's, it's, it's not, you know, I don't hate the song, but it was, uh, it was not the rumored, wrongest. It, yeah. Yeah. It was, it was rumored that they would, they worked on it as an acoustic thing for, I believe our 40 or maybe the tour before it, uh, which would have absolutely been interesting. Especially. Oh yeah. Any I would have loved that. Um, so uh, Prime Mover ends that side of the cassette, right? Yeah. We get something, a, a very different vibe, like a vibe of maybe like the closest we get to rock and roll again on this record where it's Alex is playing these palm muted eighth notes and uh, a lot more distortion. While it is kind of, maybe this one is dripping in synthesizers. Uh, I still love it. I still think it's a really really well-constructed tune that mixes rock with pop perfectly. Uh, I'm, I'm instantly drawn into the song from the first 10 seconds. Exactly. I mean, it's, to me, it's goosebumps automatically. And I'll just say triplet bass notes. <laughs> the, the thing that the, when Getty comes in, it's, uh, you know, I that that ruined my technique for for many a month. <laughs> I I would I would play every. I'm, I'm a musician also, and I, I would play every bass line with my three fingers, just you know, uh, yeah, like yeah, yeah. That I, knuckle I popping, like you know, triplet note. And to me, it's just great. I and 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 because he's playing the the wall bass. Uh, because it's so clear, like the the the, the mid range of that uh, particular bass, 
it's so clear and and just popping. You know, I just to me, I, I fell in love with the sound of his bass on that song, and then the song itself. I, it might be their best song again. I, I think this song, uh, you know, the bass fills and the leads that the bass guitar does are totally unique. Um, you know, in between the verses, when um, when, when Giddy uh, leads into the next verse, I think from the first to the second, where it's do 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 boom da better da 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 da. Right, like. Like such yeah. aggressive staccato fast eighth note, daga 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 daga. Like that's not not something that right. you would normally hear in a tune like this. Right. Yeah. It's like a, he's like he's taking the lead parts, you know, of a you know, and and uh, it's just really uh, solid. And then um, you know, lyrically, you know, all the he's talking about instinct, what drives us to do things, um, you know. It's similar to the you know the motivation that you know drives us to achieve things in our lives, and to me that reflects Rush itself. Like you know they they always they strive just to be like the the best at their instruments, and then just to to be so busy all the time. And that's what was so appealing to me about their music was the fact that they were so busy. And you know as a musician that appeals to you that you know their their just their effort to fill in the spaces is so remarkable. And uh, so, to me, Prime Mover is a great song. Uh, I also want to mention that Prime Mover uh, uh, was my pick uh, on the Setlist Challenge, and it was yours, too. I really yeah. thought we were going to hear Prime Mover. Yes, I, I did, too, because it hasn't seen the light of day since probably 88. Right. And I think it, and it's, I, I think it would just I suit their sound. Loves that song. Yep. Who, yeah. would, who would complain to hear Prime Mover? I, I mean, I'm sure somebody listening is like, you know, they'd, ra- they'd rather yeah. hear... Uh, anthem or something but uh good for them <laughs> for actually getting to hear that uh really good too i mean again we it speaks to alex's ability to uh just play one little like ostinato over and over and have the rest of the band change chords underneath that's a skill a lot of guitar players don't have and it's good songwriting i think also neil has a lot of really cool moments in this track like not only good fills like that's the first thing that comes to mind watch the world go around that's a cool fill that he does right after that um right but in general like it's just the groove that he's playing on that track i think is um is something that stands out to me on the record uh we move on to lock and key now were you gonna say something about lock and key's video because i remember thinking i don't remember specifically what it was but i remember thinking oh this see this is what like they can make good videos. <laughs> right. And and this video is definitely different than Time Stand Still. Um, it, it, it's, it's more produced. Um, it's, you know, it, there's a lot more editing going on. But um, I don't, to talk about the song, to start off, this is, okay, so we flipped the cassette over now, and this is track one on side B. And um, for me, I, I'm going to come out and say it. I actually, I don't like Lock and Key. Um, it's on my, I, I think a few weeks, you know, a few months ago, I had sent you a list of my, you know, three least favorite songs and, and, and lock and key is actually on that list. Uh, I, I think it sounds like an eighties TV series opening theme music. Like it, lo- it loses me at the beginning. Whereas prime prime mover, I, I, I like the beginning lock and key. Uh, it's to me, it, it sounds like, like law and order. Like the, the the opening music, the generic kind of that 80s sound that you were talking about, 
that's the problem I have with this song. Like when the piano comes in, it sounds kind of, to me, kind of unremarkable. I, do you feel that way, or do, do you do you well, like lock and key? Can we can we agree it's an or like do do you agree that it's an organ at the very beginning? Is is that what it is, and, or is it like a synthy organ ish thing? It's hard. I, I don't know if I would say an organ. That I it's. Because I, I actually, I don't know. You're, you're probably right. Because I used to think Mission had an organ, but it, it's really not an organ. It's like a synthy horn sound or something. Uh, yeah. You know, I'll I'll give you that. I mean, I like the track. Um, I think it's sort of the. I say this word a lot, but I don't really mean it like I usually do. I think it's the cheesiest on the record, like even more so yeah. than Taishan. I think it's it's a little cheesy. Um, but I think. What I agree with most is that the beginning is a little bit of a turnoff. I mentioned last week that there are a few tracks where like I just couldn't get past the beginning, but then years later revisited the tune and went, oh, I should not have judged this whole song by the first five seconds. The Big Wheel is a huge example of that. That's a great track. I just hate, in a similar way to how I think you feel about Lock and Key, just the beginning synths like, kind of made me go, ugh, <laughs> like, that doesn't sound good. Uh, how it is is another example where I just for something for some reason I just didn't dig the first couple seconds, um, but I do think I mean only- you're someone who who admittedly doesn't like the heavier side of things and I, this might be the heaviest on the record in terms but of the guitar only, sound. The only, thing I, the only thing I don't really have a problem with about the track is the drums. Like I, I think the drumming is is very good on it, but yeah. I, I don't like the 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 keyboard sound that that Getty gets. To me, like the the piano sound is kind of just unremarkable, and uh, like before the first verse, just the overall sound of it to me kind of turns me off. But it doesn't really ever redeem itself. Um, it gets going a little bit in like the verse, maybe you know pre-chorus, and the, the chorus is you know kind of catchy. But I just never, to me, the concept doesn't really it it, it falls flat. It doesn't do as much for me as some of the other songs and. Uh, I, I just never liked the overall sound, and I, I don't know why, but I, I just, to me, like, uh, I, I think the video was also on the Rush Chronicles collection. Yeah, it was, like was one a, of the last was, ones, was, right? Yeah, there was a VHS with the, the last video was Lock and Key, and, you know, when I got to that one, like, I just compared with everything else that I had just seen, it, it, it looks so weak in comparison, like, and um, I never, I've, Ever since then, I've always kind of been down on it, and I really tried to listen to it a lot in the last few weeks to try to to find those you know parts that I was missing. But I, I yeah, the only redeeming thing I like is the drums. The guitar is good. I think it's not that's not the problem. But I, I think most of like you know Getty's parts to me it doesn't um, it doesn't do much. So and, and he's playing a the wall, but he's playing a five string. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so here's me as a bass player being whiny. Everybody, it's like you know, quasi famously known as the track, the only track Eddie ever used a five string on. Um, and how, yeah, you watch the, you listen to the track and every time I hear that, I go back and listen to it and I'm like, where's the five string? Where's that fifth? Where's the B string? I don't hear it. Like you could play along with it on your bass and everything on a four string and everything works out. Um, at the very end, there's like one low note, but it sounds like a bass note, like a bass pedal. There's so many synthesizers happening. I think right. it's tough to discern which one is the bass guitar and which is synth. Uh, but that I don't think is a bad thing. My 
you know, Getty used yeah. a base, a five string base on one track in his whole career. I think that says something. Um, there's a time and place for, uh, there's a time and place for five strings and, and that fifth low string. A lot of five string players, in my opinion, as a professional bassist is they just abuse that thing. If you use it so much, it's not cool anymore. So I always said, if I had a five string, I wouldn't touch that string. Only for moments, really, really big moments in the music would I play that fifth string and get this low honking note. Because then then your ear kind of wakes up and goes, whoa, that's lower than anything I've heard. You know, like that's just me talking yeah. as a bass player. Uh, he, I, I think in this kind of mirror is mirrored in, uh, I think I can back up that theory in Test for Echo. Test for Echo featured a lot of down tuning meaning the lowest string on his four string was just a little bit lower than normal, usually a step lower. Uh, Half the world is a great example. Getty plays with a low D and dropped D tuning, but he doesn't play that low D. He plays it once in the very last verse. And when you hear that low note, it's like, whoa, that's, that's different. It makes that verse have a completely different feel. So I think Getty does a really good job of that. Do you play a four string, Jeff? Yes, yeah, and like I can hear the difference uh, in the bass. Like, not that not that he's because of that string, but like it just sounds like a different bass to me. And when you compare it to the bass lines of the other songs, it, it's not as uh, it, there's there's not as the same kind of poppy precision sound. It's to me, it almost sounds like a fretless um, now, in this song. You sound like you like the walls a lot. I, I I do. I think it was a great choice for this, and and it I, I especially when when you get to hear uh, a show of hands, and and just you know when he's playing songs like uh, Territories or uh, Marathon or Turn the Page when yeah, you've got it, these it's that short lines. short aggressive quick plucking style that you talked about earlier that suits right. the wall really well. Exactly, and that just like he can fit so many notes into a, a small time space, you know, as a fill, you know, leading into, you know, the different parts of the songs, and and I always just I, I love that for some reason. So I love. So the, I, I, I love that. <laughs> Sorry, man. <laughs> I love I love the uh, heavily distorted arpeggio that Alex breaks into, uh, right after. So we keep it under lock and key, and right there he it's just this yeah. Um, it just opens the sound up, and obviously, like out, that's sort of Alex's uh, trademark. You know, he's sort of known for those arpeggios, or arpeggia, as um, as uh, my professors in music school would say. Could you play those yeah. ar- the the, uh, the arpeggia a bit louder? It's, uh, that's how you sound real snobby. <laughs> yeah. All right, so now we get to what a lot of people consider is the the high point on the record, and that's mission. Again, another easily digested song, even though the middle of it is so intense and so technical, I think it's it's easy. You listen to it once, and you go, oh, th- like this this is a good song. This sounds good. Uh, yeah, my one of my favorite moments is coming out of that uh, the middle section when it goes back to just you know Getty singing and the spotlight comes on him and he, and he sings that, you know, the lyrics to that verse, you know, it's cold comfort to the ones without it. And he's really, he's, he's kind of echoing the limelight, uh, uh, you know, sentiment of a private person who's, you know, 
um, you know, struggling to, uh, I lost my train of thought, but no, that's an emotional high point of that song. That's, that's the best part. That's, that's really all I could say. I, I love the song. Obviously I, I probably won't say a whole lot about it just because it's, it's so great. I don't know what I could add. Yeah. I mean, there's really, in a way there's not much to say cause it's so perfect. Uh, I mean, yeah. I do, I knew, I do know the number one fan of this song <laughs> and my dad, yeah. uh, we talk about it all the time, but it's his favorite on his favorite record too. Uh, but it's a nice, I think I want to say that's a nice balance between synths and guitars and great bass work, great drumming. Obviously lyrically it's there. Like you, you hinted at, uh, or you talked on, it's also got fantastic meter changes in the middle. Let's see, in the middle we got on. Oh, the middle is in five, right? Uh, Neil's playing around in unison with the bass on his electronic bell kit. Like, like uh, I think my dad says it's the perfect representation of what Rush is. It has a tiny package of everything Rush ever did and did well in one song. And I think that's he nailed it. I think the only thing you, the only thing that comes close to it, I think, in that regard, is Marathon. I don't think Marathon hits it quite as well, but Mission is just a compilation of everything Rush did well in one little tiny package. And it's only what? It's only five minutes long, you know. Completely agree. Yeah. Uh. Yeah, great stuff, and I loved. I was so happy to hear it live on Snakes. So turn the page. Uh, I got to a point in my bass playing where I was like, "All right, I could, I could play Rush. Like I, I can do this. I, I, I'd spent enough hours just playing Rush that I got the technique down, and I wasn't as challenged. Like Natural Science was, is something that always stumps me, or you know, kind of trips my fingers up. It's kind of twisty." Uh, La, obviously the parts of there are parts of La Via that are really really tricky, but like I played YYZ in a band. YYZ didn't mean anything to me anymore. I could do it with my eyes shut. Is there a song like that for you? Because because Turn the Page is one. When I watched a show of hands and saw him playing that part and singing, I thought I, I I can't play that. Uh, I dare you to play that bass line and sing the melody at the same time and not make yourself look like a fool. Yeah, right. Like. like like sometimes you play things as an instrumentalist that are so hard, you're getting it done, but you're making some faces while you're doing it. Yeah, he he basically, I think his his technique for songs like this is to separate himself, to 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 cut himself in half. So like he he trains his fingers on the bass line, and then he has the melody is just so different from that bass line, and yeah. like they almost never they don't line up, and and so you literally have to split yourself and and do be doing two separate things at once and um yeah it's it and then the uh, my favorite part in that line is the kind of the chromatic funky walk down like uh do you know what i mean like yep. it's when the when the chords the, change he does that and he's like like it's like that's such a small thing but he like it's in, it's just spot on and and it's incredible that he can fit that in when he's doing so much already. Like. And I th- and what you're saying, Jeff, is sometimes it's the little things that make you yeah. a good instrumentalist or a good musician uh, or a musician people want to listen to. Sometimes it's the little time, like especially as a jazz bassist, the more I played mm-hmm. jazz bass and I'm around professionals, 
I learned the less is less is more when you're playing jazz bass. But there are these little tiny things you can do like that, like what you're talking about, that show the listener, oh, that guy could probably shred. That guy has probably has killer chops because I just heard this one little moment, but he's still serving the music and not overplaying. Mm-hmm. Getty's great. Um, I think I love Neil's uh, Neil's transition from the verse into the chorus when he says, "Every day we're standing in a time capsule." Um, where he goes into the, like a halftime, you know, and the verse is uh, one. The snare is on two and four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. And then we get mm, every yeah. day we're standing in or whatever. Uh, yeah, and it goes to the hi hat with the you know. on the upbeats, right? I think it's going one. It's hard to sing all these parts into the mic, but uh, I think you know it's what I'm very, talking about. That part is very jazzy too. Yeah, like the way he works with the hi hat and that and and changes, like you said, on the upbeats and the, it, it's in. It's amazing how yeah you know, how they can change again. These change they're changing the time, but it's it's all holding together so well. Like now, but then yeah. Uh, when I think of pinch harmonics on guitars uh, in Rush's music, I think of "Hold Your Fire." Specifically on "Hold Your Fire," I think of "Turn the Page." The solo on this track uh, is is I think a nice mix of the analog kid solo and kid gloves. Sort of the spontaneity of kid gloves. Do you hear that? Right. Yes, very much. Yeah. It's one of my favorites. Like, <laughs> like I don't, I don't consider it his best solo ever written. I just think it's a really uh, nice demonstration of his that cool sound that he had on this record. And it's contrasted by the next track, which is Taishan, which could be the polar opposite in terms of guitar tone. You know, from that screaming turn the page solo. Yeah, I well, if since we're moving on to Tai Shan, um, you know, I have to say that, uh, I, like I said, I love the Weird Rush, and and so many people want to put this song down, but again, it. Let me talk about the background a little bit. It comes from a you know Neil uh, being inspired by a, a cycling trip he took. He took to China. He actually went to uh, this mountain, right? And he goes up and he sees this landscape and this kind of like timeless expanse of land and he, he was thinking about through you know how how many millions of years this mountain is still here it'll still be here after we're all gone and it's a really enlightening experience and that whole concept of time you know again is is reiterated but you know the the thing about the the music you know that again they're kind of being experimental they're trying to simulate classical chinese music so they're using instruments like the, uh, uh, what's it called? The, uh, I can't remember. I don't, I forget the name of the flute or whatever at the beginning, Yeah. but they're using, you know, they're trying to, you know, get that sound. But to me, the most effective, uh, way in which they did that was using the guitar for one, when Alex, um, kind of plays that, um, it's on the outro, but his, the sound of his guitar is almost like an ethnic instrument, right? Like where it goes, ding, 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 ding. And, uh, you know, it's kind of like in, uh, I think in territories, right? Mm. But it's a similar kind of ethnic sound, uh, that he gets there. Totally. And then with Neil's, uh, the China splash symbol, right, at the end, and uh-huh. some, and the rhythms they use at the end. Um, I, I think it's, I think it's not as bad as people say it is. Yeah. And, and here, 
here's another thing to think about though. Like the the legend right within the song says that you know if you if you get to the top of this mountain and you raise your hand, you'll live a hundred years, right? Uh-huh. Well, think about this. Neil, Neil wrote the song on top of this mountain. So if the legend is true, Neil will live to be a hundred years old. So there's a possibility of more rush for many years to come. So <laughs> I like it. I the- mean, I think the simplicity, the simplicity in the lyrics is simplicity. That's a word, right? Why does that sound weird in this moment? <laughs> the simplicity <laughs> of the lyrics are kind of what make it work like if you raise your hand to heaven you will live a hundred years i stood there like a mystic lost in the atmosphere the class you know it's just what he's seeing at at some level and if somebody emailed me after i believe it was our episode jeff um the hold your the the hold your fire support group uh episode where we talked at length i've talked on several episodes about tyshawn defending it um right I said, you have to be in a different mindset. You have to be in a different mood to sort of enjoy it. For me, it was falling asleep at night. This was a good one to go to sleep to, where obviously I couldn't just skip the track because I was halfway asleep. So I got to hear it all the way through. Um, for me, the guitar is the reason I started loving it. The, I, once you dial in the guitar, you see that there's some nice things happening. But an, a listener emailed me and said, Jay, you have to close your eyes. No, you won't understand Taishan until you close your eyes and listen to it. And that's exactly, obviously, I'm going to sleep. That's what I was doing. But he's right. You have to close your eyes and imagine what, you know, let Neil paint the picture for you. Because I think what people are doing is is going into Taishan. Maybe they have the Rush catalog on shuffle and it goes, finding my way, you know, the camera eye, stick it out. And then Taishan, obviously, oops, you know, that's not going to work so well. So, and, and, you know, it's not my favorite. Like when I'm driving around and I'm listening to power windows, that's a different vibe than Taishan. I'm not going power windows, clockwork angels, and then into Taishan. I'm going to skip it. I'm not in the mood, but I do think there is a place for it as we've talked about at length. It's a, it's a meditation for sure. It's a meditation on a, on a, on a scene, on a, on an atmosphere, an environment and yeah, you, you have to get lost into it. Like, you know, you, you kind of go into it, but the music I think supports it so well, that concept because of the different sounds, think how different the sound of the guitar is on that song. And, you know, the kind of ethnic sound that he, you know, he gets out of his guitar along with the percussion and then, you know, get using again, the, the mood pedals to, to lay a foundation for it. Kind of reminiscent of that type of music of Chinese classical music, you know, with a, a like a low drone note, and then you know the the picking and the runs over top of it. So to me, they emulate that style in their own context very well. So I, I to me, I I like it, and um, you know, you talk about listening to it in in uh, you know in your car. You should have seen me this week as I was you know driving down the road with Taishan turned all the way up uh, in my car. You know, so it's. Uh, kind of a it's a funny thing but again i like the i like the weird rush so for me like i i like this song in particular you know i'm glad to hear you call it weird rush because i call it the same thing especially when i first started yeah. Rushcast, i'm like guys i like the weird rush <laughs> it doesn't mean it's yeah. bad it's just you're gonna think it's weird um so also <laughs> some great bass playing on type sean uh that that wasn't yeah. i mean it wasn't what initially caught my ear and, and maybe really listen but once you do really listen you realize oh it's not as synth heavy as the first ten seconds might lead you to believe, uh, 
the hold your fire support group is all about uh you know fighting AD, uh, ADD where we're like you have to listen to more than 10 seconds to understand what the song is about <laughs> that's what we're learning today right. um so the last track I, i've i wrote a monologue essentially about what everybody's missing in high water um earlier last year in like the fall i wrote it as an email to somebody and i loved i liked how, how it came out so i read it on the air uh this is another one where you have to close your eyes and sort of let neil paint the picture for you and then you'll get it well i this song for me was the track that um i did not get for a long time mm-hmm until I think it was until that episode that got me thinking about it. Oh, and, really? And right. Because, uh, for a long time, I don't think I ever got through this whole, the whole song. Yeah. I think I got, you know, it was just the first part. I think, I don't know what it was, but the drums kind of at the beginning where I was like, okay. And then it gets going and I, I turn it off. Like I just, I, I couldn't stick with it. Another thing that kind of, uh, doesn't go well with my ear. Like it just, I didn't like the sound of was the, I think it's a major seventh chord in when, when I think at the, at the part where Getty sings, we still can feel that, like, you know, where he kind of goes we up. We still and feel it, it's that like, relation. Yeah. I think that's a major seventh chord there. Maybe I, I, I'm not a hundred percent sure, but it's kind of, it has a very jazz sound to it. Like a kind uh-huh. of smooth jazz sound. Uh-huh. And, and you, you don't and like I, it. I don't know the texture of that. I don't know. It just kind of made it like it was kind of like the lock and key problem for me. Like it, it made it sound a little kind of, I don't know, cheesy, a little bit like elevator music, like kind of just, uh, you know, uh, smooth jazz almost. Yeah. I mean, you're right. And, it, it, I think it's a major seven chord uh, and that's definitely a jazz chord. But uh, that I mean, that's one of my favorite moments, but you wouldn't have to agree about everything. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I think but no, I, don't, I, don't, I like it though. Like I think it gets it's redeemed. I mean, the guitar strumming, like I hear parts that are very similar to uh, again the song "Territories" from Power Window. Uh-huh. Like the, the sound of the guitar, the strum, the long kind of strum through all the strings, and there's even a uh, La Via Strangiato rhythm, like the the one two three kind of rhythm. You know the bum bum bum. I, I hear that a little bit, like so. I hear these pieces of other songs in it, so I kind of like that about it. There's and, uh, some and, uh, several people have I forgot all about this, or I would have looked it up before. Uh, some people have emailed and said that part of that song was extracted from one of the longer tracks on Caress of Steel, and it's like one or two lines or something. Man, I for I forgot all about it, but I I looked it up like last summer when somebody told me about it. Uh, I'll let you all know next week if that guy gets back to me, if he's listening. Okay. Um, but at the La Via thing, I hadn't picked out. That's cool. Yeah, I, I noticed that. Just It's like the, the one, two, three, you know, the dun, dun, uh-huh. dun. And um, I also, I, in this song, I noticed there's no there's no fade out. Um, it's kind of like a, there, it is a final statement. And I can kind of tie that into the whole album and the whole period. Because it feels like the end of a certain period in Rush. It's the, kind of the, the end of the 80s, if you will, even though it's not really. It's the, yeah, the I always, end of this. I always kind of considered Presto a 90s record. Right, yeah. And I think that Hold Your Fire has much more in common with the albums that come before it, particularly Power Windows, than it does with Presto. 
I'm so um, happy you just mentioned the ending because this I was going to say this and you're really adding to it nicely. Uh, I think the end of every record has an, a really cool moment, and that's the the la- either the last note of the record or like the few seconds after the fade out of the end of the record, where it's a moment yeah. of reflection. And if the music's good and if the music does it right, it it leaves you sitting there in silence for a few seconds, looking back at the last hour or whatever of music that you listened to. So you get to the end of the high water, it hits that last note, it rings out, and you're sort of thinking like about how you just went through this record. And a record is a book, it's a story, and you're thinking back at older chapters and where you were an hour ago, listening to Force 10 and Time Stands Still, and you went through all these different moods, and now it's finally over. And what you're saying is that last note which was sort of rare. They were fading out a lot of the last tracks up until now mm-hmm. um, is sort of the period. It's the end of this whole era, this decade and the synthesizer sort of wave. That's really neat. Yeah. I think it's the, you know, an end of a chapter, you know, in their career. And it's a nice way to kind of, it ties it up and right. And by, by stopping, you are kind of reflecting on, you know, what you just experienced. Mm-hmm. And again, it, it goes to the, the, the production of this album is so solid that, you know, you feel like you've been through a real listening experience after this album. I mean, it just, it feels so complete and, and so solid. And, and then it's interesting where it went, I think, into the next album, too. Um, or where, you know, how... Presto, I think, you know, next week when you talk about it, I'll be really, you know, interested to see someone else's take on Presto. Because I, I don't hear a lot of hold your fire in Presto. There are moments I think in the guitar work where I I, I hear some similarities, even in from High Water. I think the kind of a, still acoustic-y sounding electric guitar, it, it's still kind of there. But the I think you know the keyboards are somewhat dialed down. But I, th- uh, I think the, yeah, I mean I think this is the big div- the biggest divide in their catalog. Um, and not just from a musical, musical perspective, like a lot of the compilations stop at hold your fire. You know what I mean? Um, like you said, Chronicles is every music video up until hold your fire. They're the, you know, I think lock and key is the last one on the, on the video. Uh, it just feels like that was a, like a new jumping off point in their career. They looked different. Like, like hold your fire. To to the old older stuff is old rush to me. When I think about hold your fire, that's like the end of old rush. If I was gonna yeah. break it into two separate groups only, and then Presto is like the oldest of the new rush. It just sounds newer. Like like on hold your fire, I still hear a little bit of the moving pictures sound. Oh, just a little bit. You know. Right. Uh, on Presto, have, it's kind of gone. <laughs> I would, I would, I, I usually divide the time periods of Rush into uh, four different categories. The, the first one would be Rush to Hemispheres, the second one Permanent Waves to Hold Your Fire, and then Presto to Test for Echo, and then Vapor Trails to Clockwork Angel. Yeah, I, I'm with you on every single one of those. I think that's perfect. Yeah. Um, and this is, I think this is the most drastic, like, especially since we've gone through that first transition you talked about from uh hemispheres to permanent waves i don't think mm-hmm. that line is as uh clear or as uh, right as bold as i used to think it was now i do see a little bit of transition material 
um, stuff that looks ahead on hemispheres and stuff that is still a little hemispheres on permanent waves. I don't feel that on Hold Your Fire Depresto whatsoever. And I and I see stuff on Test for Echo to Vapor Trails as well. There's a little bit of a gray area between those, in my opinion. But this this one yeah. for sure is like, and and they look different. I mean, Getty Getty had glasses for the first time, I think, on Presto. And well, you could also divide you could also divide the rush time periods up by Getty's hair. <laughs> so this is this is the end of the raccoon skin cap era. Uh huh. So he goes to so ponytail after goes, this, doesn't he? Exactly. Yeah, he's got the all back in a in a ponytail. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you could do something similar for Alex's hair, similar but not quite. Yeah, uh, well, as... it's, the, it's the it's the end of the flock of seagulls for him, <laughs> I think. <laughs> That's great. Uh, so. Good stuff. I mean, we could talk about the cover, which is just the the big question. <laughs> a lot of no one really has a clear answer. Uh, there's speculation, but three spheres. Uh, uh, what I like about it is, it's just red. I, red's one of my favorite colors. But the whole, literally, the whole cover is red, and I think that's maybe different than yeah, a lot of other. I mean, the Beatles have the white album, right? <laughs> but well, it feels hot. It's it's an intense color. I mean, when you look at it, it, it you know it almost you know it burns your eyes because it's just so solid red. You know, even with the you know the the three parts to it. You know, obviously, you know the the number three is important, but yeah, because it's just you know, solid red, I, I think it reflects the, the, you know, the, the album's content in a way. I mean, it's an intense, but it's also very, you know, uh, precise and very bold, like very well-defined maybe. Um, so like it, I think it works that there's not like a lot of artwork on the front cover, you know, it's just like a solid kind of, you know, cover. Uh, the inside is a little bit, I, I actually, I don't think the inside, the guy juggling, I'm not too sure that that, uh, I don't know. I, I'm not as enthused about that artwork. And I don't know if it's I'm um, looking at it, it now works. and it, it, I mean, we, I know it's a miniature set behind the guy. Um, mm. they're, they're miniatures and obviously like the, the references to older albums. Um, but he's juggling literally balls that are on fire. Uh, it looks like a, it looks like the power windows cover to me. It's dark. It's got this blue sort of hue to the whole thing. Uh, it's a mm-hmm. damp scene. Uh, I mean, he, great balls of fire is, this, you know, essentially what he's holding. He's holding fire. Uh, right. You know, maybe that's the joke. Maybe that's just part of it. Uh, regardless, I think it's cool. I think it's simplistic. It's almost like minimalistic art or like modern art where you know, it that it is what it is. It's easy to see. Uh, three right. very nice pictures of him on the back. It's a nice looking record from a packaging point of view. Yeah, I, I think so. And um, I, I, again, I would say in relation to a show of hands, you know, a lot of these songs were you know were are really solid live. You know, mm-hmm. so you know, the songs like Mission and. Um, you know the, the Force Ten that they that they like to play live. They come across really well, even though they're so complicated. You know, but that's that's kind of indicative of their style too. And one quote that I had written down too, uh, where Rush was talking, or I'm sorry, Neil was talking about the Show of Hands video. He says, 
uh, playing a three-hour rush show is like running a marathon while solving equations. <laughs> and I think that's absolutely true with these songs. Like it's, it, they're, they're doing so much and it's so intense. You know, there's, there's so much, you know, going on. Yeah. And I think Neil's um, drumming style changed, um, so much from this era and it changed. I, I think what I'm trying to say is you're right because you could see how his style changed. Like you listen to snakes and arrows and Clockwork Angels. He's more of a groove drummer. He's more about laying back and playing four sloshy quarter notes on the hi-hat and just grooving. You don't really hear that on these 80s records. He's extremely busy playing extremely fast parts. Uh, That's one of the biggest things that stands out to me in his styles and how they changed. And and we didn't even really talk about the the drums that he may have added during this time period. And like, I, I... I'm pretty sure he's playing more electronic drum. I'm, I'm not too, I'm not as well, uh, you know, now I'm not as knowledgeable on the, uh, drums, so I'm not sure what he adds, but I know he's playing electronic, uh, a kit, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm not, not too knowledgeable on it either. I'm sure he added more, but I like, I just like the pink drum set that he had. I thought that was really cool. Mm. Uh, and, and go ahead. Yeah. No, and, and I'm saying in the later years, he kind of, you know, he, you know, those went away, the electronic kits, and um, he seems to be more comfortable doing, uh, you know, grooves or, or sitting back a little bit and, and, and feeling it more than uh, looking at it from a time perspective or the, you know, when he's talking about solving equations, like it's less mathematical now or, you know, since working with uh, maybe with Freddie Gruber and changing his sound in the later years, you know, he's, the drumming is definitely different now than it was at this time period. So. Jeff, if it's cool with you, I want to bring on just for like a couple minutes, uh, one of the founding members of the Hold Your Fire support group, uh, Dad Mantis. Is that cool with you? Sure. I know he's going to have something to say about his, hands down, his favorite record. Uh, something I imagine, I, I mean, I wouldn't want to meet a Rush fan and be like, hey, my favorite record is Hold Your Fire. Like I'm just glad I don't think it's my all-time favorite cuz that would I wouldn't want to say that. <laughs> I always knew there was something wrong with you. Yeah, yeah, thanks. Uh yeah. I think I mean it's in my I think it'd be in my top 5 uh favorite records or maybe top 6 or something. Uh what it's, is it about What is it about this record that you like or t- tell us about Mission? What is it in Mission that you love? Who me? Yeah. Oh. Hey Rushcasters, how are you? Uh, and this is Jeff? Yeah, this is Jeff. Howdy, Jeff. Yeah. Hi. Hey, I think everything you guys are saying is great. In fact, I had a couple of comments I wanted to add, speaking of Mission. Um, like you said before, Mission to me has everything great about Rush, all in one five-minute and 18-second package. Um, Jeff, you mentioned that section that gets quiet again in the middle and he sings that solo part. That section mm-hmm. there both thrills me and disappoints me whenever I hear that song live. First of all, I love the fact that they played it live. <laughs> I, I went to, out, jumped out of my seat. But you they, did jump out of your I seat. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> but when they play it live, it it does not punch the way it does on the studio cut. He, it quiets down. It's just a synth. He it's sings a that beautiful they line. They tease you, yep. Right? But what's missing they, is... They give the, it a little more time. Well, not only that, I, but I, the second part of that, the second... If their lives were, yeah. 
he comes in with harmony on the on the studio cut and Neil is back there pounding the drums and it is such a great mix because there's no bass right and then the chorus comes back in with that bass on the bottom and it's just a stair step build and in concert it's him singing it by himself then him singing it by himself with no harmony and I don't know what Neil's doing but it ain't, <laughs> it ain't the same thing he's, he's playing the same thing but it, it's just not there they well I mean it, it, I mean at least you're not angry I'm not I'm not angry <laughs> it's, it's it's five seconds out of the song that I'm like that doesn't sound right but then it gets back into it and I'm okay again I don't know about <laughs> Jeff we'll ask Jeff what he thinks uh I acknowledge there is a difference. It's one of the f- it's one of the rare times where a cool moment is different live, mm. and I just see That's it as true. I have two different versions. I like them both. I, I think it's cool because I'm yeah. expecting that big entr- entrance and don't get it. And 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 at the entrance that you're expecting, and once you don't get it live, uh, Alex kind of fades in this real high note, um, and I I just think they're two different versions that I like equally. But I, I totally understand what you mean. Yeah, I, I kind of agree with you, Jay, like as being kind of two equal versions that I like. But what I like about the live version is, is Getty's voice and the way he sings it, because I think he really emotes that part so well. Because I, he, he, I think yeah. he really believes it, like what he's singing. And, and I think that comes across in the live part more than the studio album, even though it's, it's produced very well. And I, I agree with that. But... I I love it live and just watching him sing that, you know, when I'm looking at the at the concert DVD or the concert video and and you know, it's just quiet and he comes in and you see Getty at the keyboard and, and to me it comes across as, you know, really well, but even though it's different. Well that's one of those songs going back to the lyrics that these guys are living this song. You know, this is you know, they are the people this song is about, you know, as well as many others, but so yeah, emotionally speaking, I'm sure they really feel it, you know. I would I wouldn't be surprised. I would not have been surprised if they played it on R40. Cuz it would have been right. two tours removed, three tours removed, right? They played it on Snakes and then it wasn't on Time Machine, then it wasn't on uh Clockwork and then it so R40 would have been a nice time to pull it yeah, out. Especially since they, they skipped the, the whole freaking thing, right? I mean, come on. Give <laughs> I mean, us something. Yeah, I mean, the three of us are probably the most angry about it. <laughs> but uh, Jeff said earlier, Dad, that um, he pointed out that he and I both thought for sure they were going to play Prime Mover. I thought it was a lot. Right. Yeah. And uh, we were surprised they didn't because it would have worked really well. I uh, thought it would make sense because of how many songs they played from Power Windows on the uh, Clockwork tour, yeah. I thought, well, they're not going to play these songs again, so maybe they'll move on to Hold Your Fire and, and, and pull out Prime Mover. It, it seemed to make sense. Yeah, and I thought it was justified that they skipped Power Windows. Like, right, they did. They right. skipped uh, yeah. Presto, they skipped Presto. Hold Your Fire, Power Windows. Um, yeah. Oh, and Test for Echo. Um, I, I completely understand why they'd skip those tracks, but, mm. oh, well, you, you know. You would have thought maybe as an alternate night, you know, throw one of them just once or twice, yeah. like losing it or something, right? Right. Uh, yeah. Oh well. But in general, this album, though, for me, really, like you guys said, it's it's a trans transitional point from going from too many keyboards to out of it. But I think it's it transitional, their, but it didn't transition. It tran- right. You know, it was the peak, in my opinion, of them being able to blend it all. Okay. By this time. Alex really knew how to put that guitar in there yeah. with the keyboards to really stand out. 
He had some awesome great- solos. And even when he wasn't soloing, um, the parts he put in there were were so well composed. Well out. Yeah. yeah. I mean, especially the one, uh, what's the song where the bass line and the guitar line uh, switch back and forth? The, the, that's Prime Mover. Prime Mover, yeah. I mean, that that's fantastic. How, how often do you see that in a song where one t- one verse the bass is playing the part and the next verse it's the guitar playing the mm-hmm. part? And, uh, you know, it's I mean, just, there are whole verses where he lays out. I think Turn the Page is an example yeah. uh, where, you know, he just, he's just like, nope, I'm not, I don't need to play here. Oh, yeah, right, right. And in Turn the Page, there you guys are talking about that really complex bass line and, uh, and how he, how do you play that and sing that live, right? And while you guys were talking, I was over here, I had the uh, music playing in the background, so I was listening to some of the songs as you were speaking about them, and all of a sudden the second verse pops up with that song, and the bass line goes from to and Getty's probably like, what the hell was I thinking Screw of that first this. verse? Yeah. <laughs> like, like when he laid the track down, he did it in one take, and by the time he got the second verse, he's like, nope, I do not again. have the gas for that. <laughs> and then and then Ty Shan. Jeff, you had some really great points about that song. But while you were talking, I was thinking about it, and I was saying, and, and when Jared said, you know, people who have it on a, a, you know, a mix, and all of a sudden Ty Shan pops up, they're like, what the hell? But the thing is, that song gets ripped on because of that. But if you took that song totally out of Rush's catalog and said, here, listen to this song, and didn't tell anybody who it was by, they'd probably think it was a fantastic song. Because it is. <laughs> because they, Yeah, but they wouldn't be expecting progressive metal. Or progressive rock, I'm sorry. Right. That's why you're totally right. No, People would go into it going, oh, what's this band? What's yeah, this band going to sound guys? like? Right. But they go in expecting Tom Sawyer. <laughs> and you know what? I'd be disappointed too. Yeah, yeah. And I think High Water is... is is a really really phenomenal song i mean just the stuff they do in that and and like you said earlier jeff with the uh the throwbacks to like la via and and some of the other songs there i hadn't even realized that but it was like yeah it's like you know these guys are they can take good stuff from other music they've done add it in and have it have it work so well and that's you know and then lyrically here you got Neil talking about basically evolution and, and that whole aspect of uh, existence. Yeah, I remember telling my 10th grade science teacher that she started talking about how all life came from water and and I, or the ocean or whatever. And I said, you know, Rush wrote a song. Like back then I was known as just this freak that obsessed over one band no one had ever heard of. And uh, no one my age anyway. I was like, Rush wrote a song about pretty much about how life evolved from water. And she's like, oh, really? Bring it in. And I printed out the lyrics and brought it in, and then that was the end of it. Like, <laughs> She didn't comment or anything. But, uh, yeah, it's good stuff. I think this might be our longest episode on a, you know, it's telling. Hey, Jay, can I miss one more thing? Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, I, I was thinking about it because the last song that they wrote, remember, it was, was Force 10. And and so that song kind of is the one that looks forward to the future. And I want there's one particular thing about Getty's bass playing in that song, he uses chords. And I think this might be the first song where he uses chords uh, to such an extent in his bass playing. That's a Did good you point. That? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the the opening da 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 da, right. da is all chords. Um, and I know, I know if you've played that on your bass, you know it's like that power uh, open fifth kind of hand frame mm-hmm. that you start to see right. a ton of later in his playing. And I, I can think of one perfect example to back you up 
if that's the first time the instant first instance he's done that we go to the next album the pass is the same thing it's that open fifth hand frame in the beginning of that track uh that's a good point i'm trying to think of anything else on that record that he does that I think that's the first time he really uses chords to such an extent. I, I I could be wrong, but um to me that that's the direction kind of he was going and that would influence other bass players like Les Claypool, you know, yeah. and Primus. Do you know, you know what? who uses Oh go ahead. Well he they with who they toured with at the be I think the early nineties. So like I think uh Les was probably, you know, I I'm pretty sure he was influenced by a lot of that chord playing that, you know, getting kind of initiated. Do you know what that bass line in Force 10 always reminds me of? Or it's very similar to? And it's because I was mm-hmm. learning all these bass parts and went, oh, hey, uh, if you can play the bass part to Force 10, you can all, you can pretty much play the bass part to Driven, which is the same key. Oh, yeah. It has an open A, like with eighth notes ringing underneath it. Uh, the, the bass line, the parts, that riff in Driven is like several different time signatures and much more complicated. That's one of the trickiest tunes to play. Well, they're very it's similar. Most, it's always the most impressive thing when you're when you can switch between the two strings really quickly. Like in, in yeah. for example, in the song uh, "Distant Early Warning," uh, you, when you were talking about you were learning to to play that song, and you know you wanted to show off your bass playing, mm-hmm. and you know you play "Distant Early Warning," right? Mm-hmm. That you know do 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 that where you're jumping from one string to the other, kind of you know quickly, and he does that in you know in driven and in songs like that it's always uh that a, 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 that part of his style i always really liked uh you know about yeah like it kind of became kinda... his his thing for a while like malignant narcissism employed it really nicely too uh yeah that again another open driving a but yeah uh jeff nice, nice. job man it's great talking to you yeah it was fun thanks uh and uh, i, I it was very therapeutic. So. Yeah, it really is. I mean, that's why we're, we're, I'm here for you. <laughs> if you want to be part of the Hold Your Fire support group, you can join You can join Jay, John, uh, Jeff, and some dude named Jared. Uh, just send me an email. We'll be back next week with Presto, and I look forward to it. See you.